I had to do something different or I was going, I was, I was already on a spiral of like depression and anxiety. I was taking anxiety meds, like antidepressants. I couldn't, I could not keep doing it. Welcome to the Grad School Sucks podcast, where we believe that your career after grad school should rock. I'm your host, Matt Carlson, and today I'm talking with my good friend, Dr. Allie DeGraff, about how she ran away from academia, climbed the corporate ladder, and now runs her own private practice. Other topics we talked about include how she was the first person in her family who went to college, let alone grad school. We talked about how she broke some taboos in academia that ended up benefiting her career path and why she shifted from corporate life to being self-employed. And as always, we talked about what current grad students should be doing and thinking about in order to maximize their future career potential. Without further ado, let's start the interview. Thank you for joining me, Allie. Um, I think you've got a super rich story. I do know some of it. I don't know all of it. I'm excited to learn more about it. I think the first question that I wanted to ask was, what brought you to grad school? Or what, what, what were the things that kind of pushed you or drew you into grad school? Yeah. Well, hi. Thanks for asking me to join you. Um, I'm very excited for this and kind of weird being the one of the first, but excited to see where you take it because you're brilliant and I know it'll be really good. Um, yeah. So what brought me to grad school? So um, I was a first generation college student and I was an undergrad out at Texas Tech University because it was like the furthest university away from my family, but it was still safe because I had like some extended family in Lubbock. So um, it's not like I went, I didn't have the traditional path to college. Um, I transferred in from a community college and had no idea what I was doing. So I'm nearing my graduation date and I have one of my professors approach me and say, Hey, you should consider going to grad school for marriage and family therapy because my undergraduate degree was in, uh, like community services, essentially this cousin of social work. And I wanted to just work in a nonprofit agency and feel good about myself. And, uh, I told, I remember telling my teacher, like, why would I go to grad school? Like I'm about to finish. Like, why do I want to start college over again? And I had no concept of what graduate school was. So he like sat me down and introduced me to some grad students and he was like, you could be a therapist and blah, blah, blah. And so I didn't have a plan. Um, actually, a funny story. I got engaged to some dude right before I was supposed to graduate because I thought that's what I was supposed to do, which I think is a running theme in my story. You'll, you know, as the story unfolds, you'll find it. Um, so, yeah, graduated, ended up going to grad school, obviously didn't get married. Um, and and so, so I, I why, did, yeah, sorry, why therapy specifically? Well, I didn't, I have this conversation a lot, actually, like no one ever sat me down and said, you can major in whatever you want to major in. It was just kind of like, I knew I wanted to work in the mental health slash social, social services field. Um, but my professors in undergrad were all of the professors in the graduate program, right? 
And so that was just kind of where they led me. They never said like, oh, Texas Tech also has a counseling degree and a social work degree. It was just kind of like, we, our college has marriage and family therapy. You should do it. And so it was never like a intentional decision. It was mm-hmm. kind of like, and I didn't know what I was going to do after I graduated college. Like I didn't have a job or anything lined up. So I just, I was like, fuck it. Like, I'll just keep going to school. I'm really good at this. Yeah. Um, and I, I was like, I graduated with cum laude or whatever the honors are. And I was really good at college and I liked it. So I thought, you know, whatever I'll do, I'll do another two years of it. And I joke about like, you know, when you're in high school, you're kind of in the top 10% and then college, you know, you're around other people. You're also maybe in the top 10%. Grad school is all the other people that were in the top 10%. So maybe I was in like the top 50% in my master's program and get to my PhD and I'm like the bottom 1% or something. No, that's not smartness. Um, So yeah, I I went to grad school and I really liked it and I met PhD students and I thought that I wanted to be like them. So just to clarify, you you went to the master's program for marriage and family therapy. Is that what it's called there? Yep. Yep. Texas Tech. Yeah, at Texas Tech, graduated um, pretty early in my master's program. I convinced myself I wanted to do a PhD because all the PhD students, I just looked up to them. I thought they were so smart. I wanted to be like them. I loved my teachers. I never thought I wanted to teach. Um, and in my PhD, they, you know, we had to learn how to be teachers. Um, And I just loved that part of it. Um, So pretty early in my master's, I knew I wanted to do a PhD. And so I set myself up. uh, My master's program was not a thesis program. It was a clinical program. So I opted to do a thesis to improve my chances at going to a PhD program. Um, And in our Mm-hmm. A research thesis. It was, when I look back on it, it's so embarrassing. Like, don't Google it. Um, (laughs) it's cringy we'll throw it up on the screen right here (laughs) i uh i loved it i loved it so much and the tech program um it was very clinical focused not super research focused and Mm -hmm. so i didn't really know what research was i didn't know what i was getting myself into my my thesis um was was cute (laughs) um is it like exploratory factor analysis? So, you know, I had no idea what I was getting myself into, but I knew I wanted to do a PhD. Um, so yeah, I, I did a thesis, graduated through my application to a few different schools and got accepted to a couple and decided a tech accepted me to their PhD program, but I decided that I wanted some diversity in there. So I ended up going to Georgia where I met Awesome, Dr. Carlson. Yep, and we we uh, I think we met first in Lubbock. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, we were interviewing. That's right, because I interviewed for that that PhD program as well. Um, and then was it like the next week or two weeks later we were in Athens interviewing there? Mm-hmm. Yep, that's yeah. right. Um, yeah, I think you wanted to work with my thesis advisor. Um, I was considering it, yeah. I thought he was a cool yeah. dude. I wasn't really yeah. professionally oriented on like what my research was going to be about, but 
yeah, he was, he is a cool dude. Um, if he, if he's listening, hello, um, you're a cool dude, but yeah. So I, yeah, we met back then at tech and I was like, Lubbock. And you were like, Lubbock. And you were like, Oh, Lubbock. <laughs> um, I love Lubbock. Like I said, I have family there, but I needed to, I, I told myself that it isn't, you shouldn't have a degree from the same three degrees from the same institution. It's not very marketable. And, um, had I not had that assumption, I probably would have stayed at tech cause I, I really loved the people there, but in many ways, like it was really good for me to get out of there too. Um, it was, it was safe for me and I needed to kind of be outside of my comfort zone. So yeah, fast forward. The next fall, I'm in Ath. I didn't even take a break. I graduated in August. Didn't even go to my graduation because um, I had to start school in. I didn't Athens. know that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, and we started. That was August of 2013. Mm-hmm. Does that sound right? Okay. Yep, that's correct. I can't believe that's almost 10 years ago. That's almost 10 years ago. <laughs> wow. Um, so yeah, so, I went yeah. to grad. Did did. Uh, I did not do my PhD in the professional way I, or the traditional way I did. Um, I only lived there for two and a half years, if you remember. So I took like 12, 15, 18 credit hours every semester to get done with the classwork, um, which had, that's how I, I got through my master's and my undergrad program too. I just, you know, full time plus some hours. Um, so I did yeah. all of my Sorry, yeah. just to jump in to give people perspective. MFTs, yeah. manager family therapists, we do the two years in the master's program. And then we had three years of coursework. Was that yeah. for the normal speed? Yeah. And then one year of internship and one year for dissertation. So it's a five year program, projected yeah. to be a five year program. Is that right? I think that's right. And like some people, depending on, you know, your data collection for your dissertation or your internship, some people took anywhere between like five and seven years. I think ultimately it took me seven, 13. I graduated in 2019. So yeah, six or seven years. Yeah. It took me almost six. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I hurried up and did all of my coursework in two and a half years. Um, if it's not obvious, I hated it. It was awful. Um, for a lot of reasons that we can unpack, but yeah, finished up my coursework was not tied to Athens and bounced quickly to Austin, which is where I always knew I wanted to be. Um, I worked in a lab. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Can we just slow down for that one part? So in, in going from the master's program to the PhD program, what, what like expectations did you have that weren't, you know, quite the same? What were some of the, you know, overarching things that made you want to kind of speed through the program? Um, how did you see your view of your future career shifting through those first few years of the PhD, anything like that? Yeah. Um, I was actually really, really excited to move to Georgia and be in that program. Um, I think I had some really high expectations and maybe had romanticized what a PhD was. Hmm. Um, I loved the classes for the most part. Like I, 
Um, I loved discussing things with people that thought differently than me. I loved learning. I, I, I was just talking about this recently. I really loved studying philosophy, like mm. getting into the differences between philosophy and theory and epistemology and ontology. Like I fucking loved those words and I loved reading about them. And I spent so much time thinking and that was really new for me because for so long culturally in my family education was like learning facts and being able to spit out knowledge and so just to have the freedom to think um I loved that and that that did meet my expectations to some extent but what I didn't realize is that that's they there's like this one on one hand people are like think creatively and be a philosopher and you know whatever and then on the other hand it's not it's implicit is that if you don't think like us or do like we do not cool and for me the experience was like i didn't fit in um whereas so I think for me, that was kind of the first experience in the PhD where I realized like we had a, we had someone in our cohort that used to say like, it's playing a game. It's like, you know, that you're in the matrix and be in the matrix and live in, like, I couldn't, I didn't know how to be in the matrix. And, and retrospect, I have friends telling me like, yeah, you didn't come from a family of highly educated people and like academics. So of course you didn't fit in like, um, so is is this yeah. like not fitting in? Is this about like the politics in academia, or like the like the careerism in academia, or or something else, or a mixture of things? Yeah, I think it was the politics, and I guess there was just like a disconnect or incongruencies where. Like I saw myself as a student and in, in PhD programs, just to situate it a little bit, like you're a student, but for a lot of us, we had like assistantships, which means you get a job. So you're also like kind of obligated to work for the university as an instructor of an undergraduate class or research assistant or teaching assistant or research assistant. Um, So I was, I had this essentially like work study job my first year where I was uh, a teaching assistant for my major professor. Um, and then my second year I went into this research assistant lab where Matt, we worked together. Um, and so I, I like on one hand I was having this experience of like, I'm a student and a part-time worker, um, but I'm also like a free thinker and, you know, let me do what I want to do. I'm also just a really defiant kind of person. And so my parents lived in North Florida. I wanted to go home on the weekends and spend time with them because I had been in Lubbock for the last, I don't know, long time, many, many years. And so I was a road trip away, which was new. So I wanted to go home. I wanted to spend time with my family. At that time, my family was going through some stuff. Like my dad has lost his job and like just some hard stuff was going on there. So I wanted to be there. Um, and this, I don't know, this like is a symbolic representation of, of the experience for me. I'm not obligated to this university or this program outside of my, you know, coursework and the 20 hours a week I had to put in for my job. Um, 
And my professor, one of my professors told me like, when are you going to realize you can't go home on the weekends? And like, you're going to have to choose which is important or where you want to spend your time. And that was like the first kind of symbolic memory for me that I, I was just like, why not? Like, why do, do why do I have to have this be my entire life? Um, so yeah, I, 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 it's, is it political stuff? Yes. I think for me, it was like cultural, just cultural differences too, that mm-hmm. did not line up. Um, yeah. Yeah. I went down a rabbit hole, so I don't know where I'm going anymore, but yeah. No, that was great. And I mean, I feel like, especially with the, um, like you were saying that moment, the symbolic moment, it's, you know, to me, I hear it in terms of like, are you bought into the cult? Because you're mm-hmm. taking actions that show that you're not bought into the cult and mm-hmm. that can impact our view of you. And, um, you know, not, I, I never heard, I should be careful about what I say. I never heard anything <laughs> about you. I heard stuff about other students from professors all the time that give me the indication that there is this stream of communication behind students' mm-hmm. back of professors just being like, this person's not serious or this person should be disregarded or, you know, mm-hmm. we're not going to support this student anymore. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I call it cult. It could, you know, probably a lot of terms. <laughs> I like fit, that word. But. No, that's exactly, that feels like a very accurate description. Like, uh, and one, another one of the kind of expectations that I had that I guess wasn't met, and, and maybe this is a bit hypocritical because of whatever I'm saying that I wanted, didn't want to be, you know, it to be a hundred percent of my life, but there was, so I had, uh, we did percentage of, of assistantships, right? So if you had a 50% assistantship, it covered an X amount of your tuition and you got a, a stipend. If you had, I, I ended up, I started off with the lowest level of assistantship, which I think was like 10% or 10 hours or something. I can't remember. I blacked it out of my mind, but I went to our graduate coordinator and I was like, I need more help than this. Like I I'm willing to work. I'm willing to do more, but I'm going to have to fucking drop out. Like I don't come from money. I'm like funding this myself. Uh, I need more work if you want me to, to, you know, if you want to help me out, which I thought, I thought there would be a response to that. And it was like radio silence. Right. And so I'm maybe no, it wasn't ever said to you, but it definitely felt like I was probably one of those students that were like, Oh, she's, she's not really serious about this or she doesn't really, um, you know, fit in or I I don't know what it is. Um, so yeah, I was like, I mean, you know, Matt, I was like bartending (laughs) my first year trying to like make it work. Um, which also was not, you know, it was very looked down upon, but nonetheless, we do what we do. We do what we got to <laughs> yeah. do. Yeah. What were, uh, so how, so we're near, let's say we're at like year three or year two to year three, which is around the time when you moved to Austin from Athens where a PhD program was, where were you kind of envisioning your career going at that point? Because if I recall correctly, you went into the PhD program thinking, I want to be a professor, teach and mentor, that kind of a thing, do some research. 
so mm-hmm. where was how was your view shifting over those years of what you wanted to yeah, do? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, like I said, my first year I was a teaching assistant. I taught um, undergrad classes basically for my professor. He was supervising me. Um, I loved it. My second year, I switched into a research research position. Um, and I hated it. Like it was, I, I envisioned research in a really sexy way. Like I'm going to have a research question. I'm going to build surveys and interviews to like do this with my participants and So I had another external job working for a nonprofit company. Um, They were kind of political. They worked with the military population and they essentially did this like lifestyle survey. And so it's a very, um, it was actually probably my favorite research experience, but we studied, we we surveyed a bunch of military families and, um, answered research questions that I was really interested in and in a way that was like felt like a, like a direct translation. What is the military life like? What are the challenges? Like, right. And we asked the people those questions and it felt like clean and I understood what was going on. And it it was the experience with research that I expected, Mm. but in the PhD program, essentially I was a data miner, right? Like I, looked at the variables that we had on this data set that was collected years ago. And I'm trying to come up with (laughs) some statistical analysis that is significant and then, you know, answer a question that I supposedly had, right. It felt like we were retrofitting data to these research questions that I didn't really fucking care about. And so I was like, okay, I had that experience year two. Um, so did that kind of put a bad taste in your mouth in terms of research? Yeah, I was, I was just like, this isn't what I thought it was like, why? I I thought it would be, I I just wasn't what I wanted it to feel like it it didn't comport with my expectations. Um, it, yeah, it left a bad taste in my mouth. It, it, it feels like in some ways it like, pulled back the curtains I saw behind the curtains of of like research and academia and I was like this can't be what it is this just has to be this place like I'm gonna go I'm gonna go work somewhere else and see if this is how research really is so I got a job at UT and here in Austin in a research role I wasn't like a primary researcher um and this was after your coursework was completed right yeah yeah finished my coursework you moved out of Athens down to Austin yep got out of Dodge. Uh, I don't know if this is true, but this is how I make sense of it in retrospect. Like I needed to see if that was how all institutions Mm. were, or if that was just like my one experience at Georgia, because I, like I said, I had this experience at Texas tech with my cute research there. Um, And then I had this experience with nonprofit and both of those I liked my experience with Georgia was not what I thought. So I, I thought, you know, I need to go see another R1 institution and see what's up there at their labs, go work in another lab for a little bit. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> this sucks. I don't want to do this anymore. And 
for lots of reasons I had I had felt kind of burned by the academic institution in my clinical work and so at that point I was like fuck it like I'm going back to the basics I know what I like to do I like to work with people um so I just got myself a job at some clinic and decided I was done with research yeah and so and you were still a student at UGA at this time and mm-hmm. had you started your dissertation was that in your in your head oh, at all yeah. at that point yeah that's a whole that's a whole chapter so the abstract of this chapter is that i worked for this nonprofit i collected the data every year i had a couple years of data that uh this nonprofit institution was going to let me use for my dissertation i wrote a whole prospectus on it <laughs> And failed. They failed me. Um, so the prospectus, I don't, I don't know, means like it's essentially your proposal. Um, and if you pass your proposal, that means they think it's a good enough idea. And then you can do your, the rest of your dissertation. Well, they didn't like, my committee didn't like my proposal. I didn't pass. There were some issues with the data that they found. And so I went and defended my prospectus, failed, and they told me they wanted me to use this other data set that they had collected and cue in the resentments and the letdowns and the I'm not good enough. Um, yeah, I remember that, that period of life. And you, you mm-hmm. came across to me as like, um, I don't know, you were done with it. You felt like uncomfortable there. You felt like you weren't in your own skin or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a, there were a few factors. Number one. Yeah. I did not like the research experience that didn't feel congruent with what I wanted to do as a researcher. Number two, when I did try to like do my own thing with this, with this data that I had collected and answer my own research questions, it didn't feel good enough. Mm. And then there was this whole other part. So this is a clinical PhD. You get a, you get a research PhD um, in human development and family science, but as marriage and family therapy students, we work in, in clinic doing clinical work and under clinical supervision. Um, and that was a whole different dab wound um i I remember vividly defending my theory of of therapy which is like this model that we work from like some therapists do cbt some therapists do narrative therapy i did this weird one that not a lot of people did um based in like symbolic interactionism and um it's a hard theory to defend because uh, it's not very uh, concrete like CBT, right? Or like, you know, you don't have steps yeah. one, two, three. Um, it's, it's more, yeah, it's hard to measure, hard to operationalize and defend. And and I, I did it. I, I could have easily written a paper on, you know, narrative family therapy and been fine. But again, I'm defiant. And I was like, no, I'm, this is actually what I do. Like, so anyway, um, that wasn't cool with the clinical side of things. Um, and that was happening was around also, the same time, right? Same time, yeah. Okay. Around year two, 
between year one and two into year two and my last semester at the um, two and a half mark, I I was seeing clients. I, I did this weird thing in, in therapy called financial therapy where I co-led sessions or meetings with clients with financial problems with a student from the financial planning department. And I had done this in my master's program. I loved it. I still love it. Um, but I, I, uh, I might be misremembering this now. I think you were around at that point. So if you have other memories to add, please feel free. But I, w- I would get in a fight with a disagreement with my practicum professor about the clothes I would wear. Um, some of that. Not you specifically, mm-hmm. but the general conversation. Yeah. And so I would just was a story to kind of highlight this uh, experience. I was working with a very poor uh, couple. They were both people of color and they were very poor, like low SES. Um, and I refused to wear the suit and tie, right? I wasn't going to be another tie or suit telling them what to do. And so I would dress down on purpose. Um, and my professor made me write a paper on why I did that. Um, and essentially, you know, it was not approved. So I failed practicum, which is a clinical MFT like student. You don't fucking fail practicum as long as you have clients, as long as you're like, acting ethically um showing up for your clients like it's not something that you fail and so that was the nail in the coffin for me like the research stuff wasn't what I wanted it to be um the the yeah the clinical wasn't what I wanted it to be it was it was it it felt acutely it was a sharp pain that was like I am not, I'm not, I don't belong here. Mm. I'm not good enough for this. Um, and I cannot be successful because it is just, it's like not who I am does not fit into this. I'm a round peg, whatever, trying to be put into a square, whatever that saying is. And it, I felt it acutely that semester that I failed practicum. So I decided that I was going to go to another institution to see if the research stuff was, you know, just Georgia or if it was kind of across the board and I didn't have a great experience there either. Right. Sorry. That was the one in Austin, right? Mm-hmm. So Q alley moving to Austin, still yeah. in the PhD program technically, yep. but yep. not, not there physically. Yep. Yeah, I was enrolled in dissertation hours, which which means like you don't have to be in class. You're supposed to be writing your dissertation, um, but you're still a student there. Uh, I think they call it. Uh, what do they call it? Where you're like a doc PhD candidate. Oh, ABD. Yeah, PhD. ABD. Yeah. 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 Um, okay, so you're so in whatever Austin. they let me. Yeah. Sorry, you're in Austin. You did the 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 research thing at UT. You got out of that, and then you started working at that clinic in in substance abuse treatment. Is that right? Yep, yep, that's right. Yeah, substance abuse treatment rehab. Yep. Um, and at that point, that was so. This is crazy. So, um, 
I was making, I think, like $38,000 a year as a research assistant in, in UT, which was good. I was like, damn. That's Better than a lot of grad students. <laughs> yeah, like I'm rich. I'm, I've made it. I'll stay in this salary forever. Um, I went to an entry-level clinical position making more uh, that did not require a PhD. As long as I had a provisional license, which means I like went to my master's program and graduated and got like this license, I, I was making more money. And I was like, what have I been doing this whole time? Like, why am I not doing this? Um, Do you mind sharing like yeah. the range of what you were making? Yeah. Yeah. So when I, okay. So I started um, at UT, I was around, I was either like 36 or 38, five, something like that below 40. And my clinical position started me at 45, around 45 a year. Um, so again, I was like, God, I've made it. Like I'm rich. Right. <laughs> I can stay here forever and be happy. Um, I guess so. But then, yeah, after I became fully licensed, again, not necessary. Like you don't need a PhD to become fully licensed in this clinical position. They bumped me up to over 50. Uh, a year. And so I I had this realization, like, why am I trying to work in academia and research? I, I was, I was a sketchy little bitch too. And I would like look up my professor's salaries. Um, and like the other research people at the university. And I saw a path in which like, if I stayed in industry, I would, I was going to be making more money than them. If I just stayed on this track that I had kind of like in industry, meaning being a therapist in like a, being a therapist. You know, yeah, rehab. Of the, yeah. yeah. So how long? Not did even you a well-paying part of. Yeah. Right. How long did you stay at the, at that clinic? Like I'm I'm thinking yeah. like, uh, how many years did you do the clinic work before you got into some kind of management or supervisory position? Yeah. Okay. So my role. So keep in mind, I'm doing my dissertation at the same time that I'm, I'm in this clinical world. Right. Yeah. So I start off as a, as an intern level therapist. I was there for almost two years because I had to finish my full licensure and it takes about two years uh, to do that. So I was in the intern provisionally licensed clinical role for two years, got immediately got promoted to a clinical director role. Um, That's a job. Which if you, Yeah. I had already been taking on like lead therapist stuff. Like I was, they were giving me these things to do because I was just the kind of person, like I wanted to do more. I was never content with just my job description. I was like, let me, let me invent groups. You know, I, I think we can do a better job at this community group and whatever. And they loved it. Right. Because it's a, not a very well-resourced industry. And so when someone comes in with excitement to do more and better, they're like, go for it. Like, they're all tired and burnt out. And so I was just this young green therapist that was excited to have someone appreciate the work that I was doing. Yeah. And and, it, and I, I loved it. Um, so yeah, I, I got promoted pretty quickly to a clinical director role. Um, and I was very green. Like my supervisor, my, my boss that hired me knew that. And so she gave me a lot of mentoring and coaching and taught me how to be a clinical director. Yeah. And then I did that for about two years. Um, 
Do you mind sharing the salary range of that that promotion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I believe when I started, it was I did like a three month stint as a quote lead therapist, like on paper, and then did the, the clinical director. So I went up to sixty five thousand a year as the lead clinician, and then clinical director started at seventy five. Nice. Um, and then something that I've been telling people like in industry, you get annual raises. So you're like bumped up 10% every January or whenever it is that they do your annual review. Um, so yeah, I started out at 75 in the clinical director role, got some raises ended around 85. Awesome. Yeah. So how, how many so years then, were you at that clinic? Sorry. From yeah. that to the director role? So all in all, well, I got one more promotion after that. Oh, okay. Um, but all together, I was there for like almost six years, I think. Five and a half, six years. Um, yeah, so after my clinical director, I basically got promoted to a regional director of clinical operations position. Um where I was making a hundred, I ended, I ended that job at 133 a year. Awesome. Um, Which is way more yeah. than assistant professors make. <laughs> yeah. Even professors with grants that like yeah. bust their ass in the grant rat race. Like that was on par with salary of, of them. And I just graduated in 2019. So like, I think it was, 2019 and then in 20 at the end of 2020 or maybe the beginning of 2021 no it was definitely 2021 is when i got that regional jump that's right to, to the six figure and then so. that that was the role you had when we were in austin is that correct yeah okay yeah so to just yep. wrap up that that period yeah you when did you finish your dissertation was that when you were clinical director Mm hmm. Damn. Yep. 2019. Um, yeah. And so just for backstory for everyone else, we had to do the years of coursework, which you did quicker than normal. Mm -hmm. Then you moved. Uh, you had to do a year of internship, which you ended up getting. You no, if you recall, I dropped MFT. Oh, shit. That's right. Like I forgot about like that. That's <laughs> yeah. right. And that was drama. Okay. Yeah. All that's coming back yeah, to me now. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So the backstory on that, they were giving me shit about my clinical model and I was, I was fighting it like tooth and nail. Like this is the actual therapy that I do. Here's my defense of it. Here's the research. Like here's all the books on it. This is a thing. People do this model of therapy. I do this model of therapy and they were like, Nope, it's not good enough. And so I was like, well, fuck this. I'm not doing it then. I just like, I don't know right. what happened, but I just like opted out. I was just like, <laughs> never mind. I think someone told me that that was an option. And I had like never considered that I could just say, no, thanks. Never mind. Yeah. Then I'll just drop this. It was total paradigm shift for me. So yeah, so I didn't have to do an internship. I just, um, well, yeah, I chose not to do an internship and I chose to not um, have that on my 
degree plan, which didn't matter because like in all the tangible ways I had taken, I took this fundamentals of supervision course, right. Which gives me the the ability to be a supervisor. Um, It's just my, you know, whatever my degree is human development, family science, just like every other one, every other person in that degree. Um, You just didn't have the emphasis on couple and family therapy line which ironically i think you probably have more therapy hours than you're in Everyone the top, else top two or three of our contemporaries if not the number one spot i would think mm-hmm. based on how long right. you're at that clinic which is ironic yeah. um yeah yeah so, so i think it's an sorry, important note too like i did the coursework and so I have all of that on my transcripts. It's just my degree doesn't say emphasis in. And and so it's weird. Like it's kind of worked out really well for me. But because your job, employers in the industry, they don't care. Like right. <laughs> if I'm not being a professor in an MFT program, then it doesn't matter. Right. Um, I, like all the tangible things that you can take from that I got because I did the coursework. Right. And just, um, to, give, just to give people perspective – uh, like if we were psychologists, you do have to get like a PhD or a PsyD mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, I don't remember the term, like terminal degree mm-hmm. or marriage and family therapist masters is the terminal degree. And so anything, yep. any education after that is just extra. Yep. Um, okay. So that brings us to you had the regional supervisor job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um Sorry, what was the name? You didn't call it regional supervisor, did you? Uh, Director of clinical operations. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, And so you were, I guess that's not a a C-suite job, but you were pretty high up in the, in the rankings in that company, right? Mm -hmm. Like how many, how many layers were above you at that point? Yeah. So I reported directly to the regional CEO and the regional CEO reported directly to the national CEO of the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so you're next, close to the sun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The next promotion for me would have been CEO, but I didn't, that the job didn't really yeah. sound like something I wanted to do. I wanted to be more clinical for sure. Yeah. It, it, sure. The CEO is more like marketing and business and financials and um, that stuff gives me, it makes me want to drink. So. Yeah. So what, what over, over the years or not even over the years, but what helped you reach this place professionally? Because just a couple years prior, you were like a teaching assistant making like 30 grand a year. And then fast forward, what, four or five years or something like that, you're in a much mm-hmm. different position professionally. So what, what helped you make that shift? Yeah. Um, I, I wish I could say like, I was so insightful and thoughtful, but um, I had to do something different or I was going I was, I was already on a spiral of like depression and anxiety. I was taking anxiety meds, like antidepressants. I couldn't, I could not keep doing it. So I had to do something different. Mm. Um, 
And I went back to my roots essentially. And I knew that I loved doing therapy work. And so I just took the first opportunity that came to do therapy work. Um, and I, I white knuckled my way through the dissertation. It was not enjoyable. Uh, it was, I would describe it as traumatic and exploitative. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't really have like a profound answer. Like I had to do it out of desperation to yeah. not kill myself. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And it, it just, I, I lucked out. I found a place that, and I found an amazing supervisor that was willing to coach me up and believed in me and liked, liked the way that I thought and appreciated me and, uh, don't get me wrong, like it had its shit too, but that shit was something I was willing to take because I liked the work so much. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I hear a couple things. I hear uh, you found you found a mentor who the trade of pros and cons was a net positive. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And they helped you like throughout your career progression and your mentor when you became clinic director was also your mentor at the regional level, correct? Yep. Yeah. Right. She also got elevated. Yeah. Yeah. And, and shout out to her. Her name is Rachel. Like we dominated and everyone yeah. loved us. And I don't know, like, I don't know why, but people loved us. Um, and we, we were successful in a lot of ways. We definitely like had areas for improvement, but in the company, there was like between 10 and 10, 11 and at our lowest point, like seven or eight facilities nationwide. Uh, so we represented the one in central Texas. Um, but yeah, even when we like didn't hit our metrics, like people just liked us. And I know it's really simple and like not very profound to say, but like that goes a long way. I never had that experience in academia where like, even if you're not performing at the level that other people expect, like they like you and they think you're smart (laughs) and they tell you that you're pretty, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Likeability is important for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know where I was going with that or where you were, but. The the second thing that I heard from you talking was that you did something you loved, um, and like getting back into like quote the dirt so to speak and doing like substance use work, rehabilitation, um, you know stuff that you're you're passionate about. Do you think you would have ended up the same? I don't. Do you think you would have had the same trajectory if? maybe like the clinical aspect was different or maybe you just took like a random desk job. You know, I thought about taking a random desk job for a little while, um, doing something like, uh, I I don't even remember. I was thinking about quality assurance. Like I really like auditing and, Mm. and I like to tell people what to do. So I was like, Oh, if I do like quality assurance stuff, um, but yeah, I just like at the end of the day, if it doesn't translate back to something that means something for somebody or for myself, I find myself bored with it. Um, or if it's not challenging in some way that um, makes me think differently or learn more. Uh, yeah, I didn't want to do it. And, and I know that I, that's like really privileged 
that I had for whatever reason, like the world I lucked out and that I did that master's degree. And I, I just kind of like followed my heart. And when, when shit hit the fan, I knew to go back to those roots. So there was like something innate. And I, I knew this, this is weird to say, but like the things that I learned in my PhD, like discipline and um, seeing things through and really getting into the weeds. I took like, that's, I think that's why I became so successful in that uh, substance abuse world because I knew how to work Excel spreadsheets where most therapists don't. I knew how to interpret data. Um, I knew how to be a public speaker because I we had to teach um, in the PhD. And so there were things that I did take that, I, um, that helped me be successful from that PhD program. Um, and I like, I liked it. Like, right. Like I, I, I I had a bad experience, but there were things that I took from that PhD program that I loved. And I somehow manipulated them to work for me in a way that I can't quite articulate. Yeah. 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 You've, you've, I'll finish my point and then we'll take a turn in the story. You, you've always struck me as someone who works super hard whenever you have passion on the subject and, you know, you talked about, um, you know, never being, always being curious and like looking for the next thing and like pushing into the next direction, even if it's not like, doesn't fit the status quo, um, or like the, the happy PR message that, you know, a, a research lab might want to focus on or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so leading up to today, now you've taken one final step in your career and now you're in private mm-hmm. practice, correct? Yeah, private practice and consulting. I also do teach a little bit at some universities, but oh, it's clinical. I know that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I am self-employed, I guess. Um, I quit my I quit my big wig job. Um for a lot of COVID really fucked me up. Like, um, that was really hard. We were like a hospital level of care. So, uh, so it was really intense, but, uh, so super burnt out and decided that I didn't want to be there anymore. And yeah, doing private practice, doing a little bit of clinical consulting in the operations world for treatment facilities. Um, and then yeah, I teach practicum and a couple classes here and there. <laughs> Scaring the shit out of new therapists, I'm sure. Yep. <laughs> I'm super nice to them. <laughs> I tell them that all their theories are valid and good. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, that's but yeah, my, my salary is comparable to what I was making in, in for-profit industry. So... How many hours a week do you think you work right now? I know it varies. But. It varies. Let's look at this week. I can tell you exactly. Um, four, five, six, seven. Nineteen hours this week. Nineteen of scheduled like, clinical hours. Mm-hmm. Not bad. Yep. 
and that includes my practicum and I do, uh, I, I do individual supervision for like provisionally licensed therapists in Texas. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I'm working half the hours making the same amount of money now. Yeah. Like there's some next week is going to be way busier. Um, but here I am. Just That's awesome. Yeah. So to start the last part of our conversation, if you were able yeah. to talk to like master's level Allie today, like what would you be saying to her in terms of like future direction, her career, you know, the things that plague her mind at the time? We could do an empty chair um, technique if you want. Yeah. Yeah. I would say to past Allie. Um, who you are now well okay who you are in 2013 is going to be so different than who you think like you're going to grow up to be something totally different than what you could ever imagine um and the things that you find meaning in now quickly become meaningless mm -hmm. <laughs> you find new meaning and deeper meaning in other things not to say that life becomes meaningless sure. but Meaning shifts. Um, and I, I think what I would say to PhD Alley is that not all of this will be lost on you. You are learning really important life lessons that don't have to do with anything on the curriculum in this PhD program. You're learning skills, you're learning discipline, you're learning ways of being. You're learning how to think critically and be open-minded, but also disciplined in that kind of thinking. Um, and also I would validate for PhD Alley that that system is exploitative. That's yeah. not crazy. It's not something that I'm making up in my mind. Yeah. I know there are going to be grad students listening who resonate with quite a bit of that. What what advice or takeaways or quick hacks or anything that you can think of that, that you think people would find value in like from your journey? I think when you're in it, when you're in the shit show of grad school, there are parts of you that are screaming certain things. What, like for me, it was like, you don't belong here. You're not good enough. You're like, what are you even, why are you even doing this? Um, I wish I would have listened to those loud parts in a way that they didn't have to scream. So that way there could be space for those other shy and scared and vulnerable parts. Um, I was just very reactive to those loud parts of me. And if I, if I would have just taken a minute to take a step back and like really look at what I was doing and what I was getting myself into and the kind of gravity of that, um, I, I have no idea. It's like, you can't see the forest through the trees when you're in it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I guess I'm kind of speaking to like 
zooming out. Um, and yeah, hearing those softer, shyer, scareder voices, parts of you that are too scared to stand up and say like, I'm not fucking doing this. <laughs> um, yeah. or I'm doing it my way and realizing that you do have power in that. Well, well, maybe, hopefully you do. I, I think there are programs that absolutely, um, don't allow that, but. Yeah, I think the other thing that I would say is, like, learn your value. Because all all of us have value in those institutions and in those systems. I think academia sets you up to compare yourself with others or to look at others around you and what they're publishing and how many they're publishing and what journals they're publishing in and the rank of their impact factor and how many grants are you working on, whatever. And like that your value is not tied to those things. And there is value in the program that are not those things. Um, Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. So, I don't, I'm struggling with that because I don't know that I would have been able to hear that when I was in grad school, but I know that I needed to hear someone. I wish someone would have forced me to hear that. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I, the, the part that you said before about the loud parts, I really connected with that. Um, and the first thing that came to my mind was like, do or die. And that was kind of like, the feeling I had the whole time. And, you know, it was a little bit of a thrill. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, it was like, there was a quiet part of me that was like, maybe I don't want to be doing this. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, it wasn't until uh, we had our son that I really mm-hmm. like listened to that part at all. And that's what makes me go back to like the cult kind of language is because. Yep. Part of being in a cult is that you don't know it's a cult when you're in it, right? It's like a, it's like <laughs> yeah. it's like voluntary engagement in a delusion of some kind, and mm-hmm. that's probably like a little hyperbolic in terms of describing academia to you know play devil's advocate. But yeah, if only we could hear those those quiet parts when we're in the thick of it. Yeah, yeah, and that quiet part of you that's like. I don't know if I really want to do this. Even if, even if I would have listened to that part while I was in grad school, I probably still would have finished it. Um, But, but there, there, it feels like sad that I didn't give voice to that or give air to that in the, in the mix of it. Um, because that part of me now I'm like, Oh shit. Like, why didn't I listen to that? I could have, I could have responded so differently, um, and more compassionately, which is ultimately what I needed in the, in grad school. Like I needed to just be okay. Um, but yeah. 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 I, I think I I don't know if this fits anywhere, Matt, but I wanted to say that um, the idea of like the financial guilt behind working in industry. um, What do you mean? Can you say more? 
Yeah. So like I, I have friends that, um, finish their PhD and they're in academia and I feel like there is this thing that all people do where we have this like money is such a taboo topic and we don't want to talk about it with each other. And I don't know if you've like read anything or, or into the like financial transparency in the workplace. Um, but I have a very close friend who we talk about finances openly. Um, and because I kind of shared with her industry standard and we compared it to academic standard, like it's not a, it's not an exact comparison, but um, I think on both ends, there's like guilt and shame related to finances in academia and in industry and cro- cross crossing those worlds. I don't know really what my point is, but I, I do want to say like, I think that there's something behind the financial part of being paid what you're worth and knowing your value. And, um, I'm sad to say it, but like industry values, PhDs, I think more than academia does. Um, and like, I I like to think about it. Like I spent many, many years on my brain and many, many dollars on my brain. And I have to assert myself to be paid or compensated fairly. And I still like, have to override that guilt sometimes. Yeah. Um, so I don't know where that fits or what that's about, but I feel like that's an important thing that I just want to put out there. I, I think that makes a ton of sense. And honestly, uh, I could not have said it as eloquently or fully, but that kind of thing is, is partially why I asked you to, if you'd be willing to provide your income range for like each of the steps yeah. up that you had in your career. Because I think, you know, I had, I had no, idea when I was in the PhD program what my options were outside of academia and Mm -hmm. some of that is on me for not like you know doing my own research or whatever or not having more of an extensive social network that would have like fed me that information or something but some of it is you got sucked into the cult I did I mean and and it's it's self-reinforcing in that you know our our professors don't benefit from us going to industry and getting these high-paying jobs um, the other thing I, I, I wanted to say was, uh, thank you for sharing that. I think that's really helpful. And to go back to your story about you and your friend to give context, I know who you're, I think I know who you're talking about. And so she's a teaching professor, uh, teaches at an online university and, um, full-time gig and your, your salaries are pretty, pretty far apart. And, um, you know, she may work more hours than you or you than her. I, I don't know the split of that. but And that, that difference was what you were saying in terms of, like, there's shame and guilt kind of on both ends. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I ask myself, why, like, I don't deserve more than her or less than her. And she doesn't deserve more or less than me. Like, we have literally the same exact degree. Um, our interests are different. And... Um, yeah, I, I guess I'm, I'm just advocating for like financial transparency in academia because you, in grad school, you look at your professors and you're like, oh my God, they're so awesome and cool. And I want to be just like them. And you idolize them and you romanticize the, 
the position and then you realize, oh, they're making $80,000 a year, which is what I realized when I had left Athens and came and worked in Austin. I like, what the fuck? Like I am making more money than my professor who has 50 more years experience on me. Like, right. And I had this moment where I was like, I don't deserve this. I'm not worth this. This is a scam and everyone's going to find, find me out. Um, and so, yeah, I still have to do work on like, no, I, I'm worth this. And the, the everyone is worth this. And, and it, it does not necessarily tied to a dollar amount, right? Like, I know therapists that per, that work really hard, long hours, and they make less money in private practice because it's important to them that they provide services that are affordable in a different way mm. or accessible in a different way than the things that I provide. But it's not like a one-to-one direct value judgment. Like that person, you know, maybe makes less money than me, but they're doing important work that they feel is um they compensating them in a way that they feel content or, or fulfilled with right um so i'm i think i'm kind of talking in circles but it's one of my things if i were to um go die on on a hill it would be a financial transparency hill mm-hmm. um in in many ways uh but yeah well, I, I appreciate you being open to share your numbers. Yeah. I think, you know, obviously not everyone listening to this is going to be in a, in a clinical realm. Um, yeah. I think it's probably dis- disproportionately clinical just because I've made some content about therapy stuff over the years that probably attracted some eyeballs from clinicians. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, and, you know, the job I just got, is essentially an assistant professor salary mm-hmm. not clinical at all for like a fraction of the workload yep. um, and so you know opportunities are out there and on average mm-hmm. i think i read something that it's industry makes on average 30 percent more and obviously that'll vary a lot by by the field yeah. that you're in but um yeah but yeah um I work with professors in different disciplines in my practice and they describe a very similar experience. So I, I don't know. Um, yeah. The pay, the work, the cult feeling. Um, yeah. So without saying too much, I think other fields will be able to relate to it. Yeah. Um, yeah the workload. I mean, I, you know, my mentor, he, he made sure we all worked pretty hard in the lab. He also worked pretty hard. And I remember not envying him because he would be on campus later than me. And he had young kids. And I was like, ooh, man, that it's uh, a tough yep. grind. Um, I basically watched the decline of my the decline of the health of my major professor happen right in front of me. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was hard. That was yeah. That was hard to watch, and I don't know. I don't want to live my life like that. And I, you know, cheers to the people that do because if they can grind like sure. that, like <laughs> hats off. But I'm not. I can't live like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. 
We are agreed on that. Okay. Um, let us, so any other, I, I think one of the things that I wanted to get at was like practical tips for folks who are currently in grad school. They're thinking of their professional future. Uh, I think most folks in grad school aren't completely determined whether they're going to go into industry or stay in academia. And so they're, they're wanting to keep their options open. In listening to you, there were a couple things that, that stood out in terms of practical ways to um, get ahead for whatever your future profession could be. Mm -hmm. um, one of them was, you know, applying yourself. You learned all these new skills in your PhD program that set you apart from other clinical faculty who, who did not get a PhD. Um, you talked about the discipline. And you talked about your the mentor you found, and I want to give you maybe more credit than than you had mentioned before on that. And I think attracting a mentor like that is kind of like a networking skill, right? And I I think you're a very adept networker, um, and oh. you know I I I see you know, how you form professional relationships and I kind of like look up to you and I'm like, okay, that's, you know, I'm going to be, Aww, I'm gonna be uh, uh, suave and, and slick like Allie, like in a good way. Um, so how do you, how do you view, let's just take networking. So how do you view professional okay. networking? Um, how did this particular relationship with your mentor blossom? Anything in that area? That is so interesting to hear you say that. First of all, thank you. I don't see myself that way. Um, I hate networking. Mm. I hate it, hate it, hate it. Like we have these little conferences once a month in Austin for professionals in a certain industry. And I used to have to go for my job and I uh, hated it. I used to say like, I need a handler at those things to introduce me to people because I, I, I see myself as like very shy um, in situations like that, but I know that I'm good at one-on-one -on -one. and I know that um, people think I'm smart. So if I can like present at a conference and allow people to like relate to me as they will, I do, I do better in that way than versus like trying to walk up to a table and be like, hello, my name is Allie and I own a private practice and send me your referrals yeah. Um, I do, I know that it's my strength to be one-on-one -on -one or like one in a small group versus a big situation. But I say this to the, to the therapists that I work with when I'm supervising them, like at the end of the day, we know that the, the number one predictor of good therapy is that your client thinks that you're, well, number one, they like you. And number two, that you guys are aligned in your shared goals. Mm. So if you can, like, that I feel like translates to all relationships, business relationships and networking, friendships, um, family relationships. Like, if, if you can like the person in front of you, find something to like about them, because that's true, like, with some business relationships there are people that I generally don't like, but I find one thing I like about them at least. And I focus on that and I try to get them to like me and just be a human. I'm not trying to be like Dr. DeGraff. That's an expert. Like 
no, I dropped the F-bomb with my network people. Like, I am just who I am. Um, I think people are drawn to that kind of authenticity. And even when I'm nervous, like, I was at a – I have another mentor. uh, His name's Sam. Like, I met him one time at a, a, um, like, little networking thing for a new facility that opened. And I was like, I'm so fucking nervous, Sam. And he's like, he's like my boss, right? Like, he's also one of my bosses. Like, dude, I'm sweating. I hate it here. Like, um, so even when it's like the, you know, the playful, like, I'm nervous. I'm just acknowledging that I don't like feel comfortable in these, in these situations. People like that, because I think we can all relate to what that feels like. And so I don't know, I think I'm kind of rambling. Number one, like the people, find something that you like about them and be likable. Number two, find something that's like a shared common goal. Like I love it when therapists come to me and they're like, I want supervision because I really want to learn about this particular model of therapy. And I love experiential. And I'm like, yes, I align with them immediately. Right. Mm -hmm. So find something that is a shared goal or a shared ambition. And then like, just be authentically you and let people relate to you as they wish. And everyone can sense when you're trying to put on this business facade. Um, And so I just choose to like opt out of, that i'm not i'm not gonna play that game um i'm just gonna be me and hopefully you like me but if not like that's cool too we can just focus on our shared ambitions that makes so Um, much sense yeah and i think that that's the success in my relation i have like two or three really kind of two mentors and I don't try to like sugarcoat it or t- show them, you know, who I want them to think I am. Like I show them all of my nerdiness and I, how I geek out on this projects that we're working on or whatever our shared goal is. And I also let them see this other part of me that's like insecure. And like, I do need your mentorship. I do like, I'll tell my mentors like, Hey, I'm calling because I need you to tell me that I'm special and pretty and smart. <laughs> like I, I just, put that out there to them because I think that particularly with mentors, everyone likes to feel like you're asking for their help, right? Like I do a lot of work around with clients around like, how do you feel when someone comes and asks you for help? You feel special and important and smart and like, but you refuse to go ask anyone else for help because you think it means that you're not good enough. Well, do you think that the people that ask you for help are not good enough? No, you like that. Like Mm -hmm. you think that they're actually smarter and more thoughtful. And so I have no shame in saying like, I can't do this. I don't know what I'm doing. I need you to teach it to me. Like I feel small and dumb. And then they're like, absolutely. I would love to help you. Cause that's what mentor, that's what good mentors want to do. And so if we present to our mentors, like, I am so smart and good. Will you be my mentor? They're going to be like, what? Like, so I guess that's what I mean by like being your authentic self and meaning that you have permission to have all of those parts of you be there in that relationship. Um, so yeah. yeah, I think I'm soapboxing, but no, that, no, that, that makes so much sense to me. And I think, I think, you know, I, I, I'm probably an introvert and I am slow to warm up to people, generally speaking. And, you know, I think my default and the default of many people is to kind of put on that, that fake representation 
and go through maybe three or five professional connections and build that kind of like lukewarm relationship with. And I, and I think that what you're saying makes way more sense. It's that if you, you bring your authentic self to the table and you just accept that there are going to be some people who don't like you and some people you don't like and you don't have to be friends with everybody. And frankly, those three to five lukewarm relationships that fake Matt might be okay with, they're not going to be the ones to be the cheerleader for me to get a job or a promotion, right? It's going to be the like two people out of 50 that you met, but those two people love you for who you are and they want to see you succeed. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like if I was to try to pull something out, it's like, you know, be your authentic self and just keep looking because eventually there will be people who really connect with you, um, whether it's like a mentee or mentor relationship or an equals relationship. And those are the professional relationships that, that will serve you in the long run and be satisfying i mean yeah yeah they're more meaningful right because you get to be your whole vulnerable self authentically and yeah the relationships where i'm that i'm in that i have this crafted version of myself like it's exhausting and i don't like myself in that like why would i expect someone else to like me in that and um as scary as it sounds like Brene Brown is right. Like if you can be vulnerable, people want to be in relationship with you because it's, it's brave and courageous and people are drawn to that. And cheers, Brene Brown. (laughs) Thanks. She's great. Well, we, we are, are running out of time. Is there anything on your mind that we didn't cover? Um, Any takeaways or any funny stories or one liners? Alleyisms. Um. Damn, I don't think I have any alleyisms that I haven't already. You probably have heard. I have a funny story I want to tell. Go for it. All right. So it's August 2013, and I am bartending at this bar, and I, I'm also starting my PhD program. And I see this bar back at the bar. He's working there too. And it's Matt Carlson. Yep. And I don't remember, <laughs> did we see each other first in orientation or at, I think it was at the bar first. It might've been at the bar first, you know, cause it yeah. was right out the gate um, yeah. that we both started working there and we yeah. had no idea each no other idea. were going to be working there. Yeah. Yeah. So we're both working in this bar and then we were like, you're in my PhD program. You're in my PhD program. What are the odds of like, we both are working at, but Athens has like a whole bar scene. It's not like, there's like probably a hundred bars downtown. Um, What are the odds that we're both in the same bar and we're both in the same PhD program, which is also like super competitive and rare. And it was just, it's funny. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's not funny. That was funny. Small world. Yeah, and now we're still friends, like almost ten years later. Yeah, yeah, and I I remember one element of of working at that bar was I, I felt an element of maybe like secrecy of like yeah yeah maybe we don't publicize the fact that we have these side jobs in addition to our assistantships and our classes and yeah yeah 
Those are fun. Same, dude. It was supposed to be like my own little secret because I had gotten so much shit for bartending in my master's program. Like, you're out late. How are you? You know, so yeah. But no, I think, Matt, what you're doing with this podcast is really cool. And um, I wish I would have found something like this while I was in grad school. So thank you for doing this from past me and future generations of grad students. Um, I think you're doing something really cool and meaningful. So. Thank you. Thank you You're special. Thank you. If uh, if listeners want to follow up with you somehow, um, would you op- you would you be open to that? And if so, how yeah. would you recommend people reach out to you? Yeah. Um, well, I don't have a Facebook or business Instagram page, but I need to ask you how to do that. Um, but yeah, my email, I mean, you can find me online. My my website is degraphtherapy.com. Um, yeah, it's D-E-G-R-A-F-F therapy.com. Yep. 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 Okay. That's me. Uh, all my contact info's on there. Um, my cell phone's on there. You can text me. Uh, but yeah, otherwise, uh, to be determined on if and when I get a professional facebook instagram twitter hip or whatever very cool very cool yeah well thank you for joining me ali this was a great Thanks. conversation dr ali de graf thank you thank you dr carlson talk to you next time see ya bye Folks, thank you for listening to the Grad School Sucks podcast, where we believe that your career after grad school should rock. I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. Allie is one of my favorite people, and I've loved watching and learning from her career trajectory over the past few years. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like and subscribe, leave a comment, and write a review. If you know someone who could benefit from listening to this podcast, send them today's episode and let them know why they should check it out. As always, I'm your host, Matt Carlson, and I look forward to bringing you another great interview next week. See you all then.